Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Quest. Is the veil thinning, or is it just me? No, actually, I think she is me. Maybe this is something we should talk about off air. (laughs) But what's... But that's what this episode is all about, along with haunted bowling alleys, inconvenient nosebleeds, white woman Wednesday, pills that make you a serial killer, unalive, and of course, we're totally trying to make fetch happen. It's never going to happen. But join us anyway as we discuss The X-Files, Season 4, Episode 22, Elegy. This episode is, I wouldn't say lighthearted, but... It's not going to be, you know, super bogged down. However, I do want to give a mild content warning for discussion of femicide and ableism specifically pertaining to people with autism. It's going to be relatively brief, not super in-depth. I do not believe it would be triggering, but just so you have that in your mind coming in, please take care of yourselves. And also... We will be discussing a significant spoiler in the mythology arc of the X-Files Season 4. So be aware if you don't like spoilers. All right, so let's talk about the X-Files. The X-Files is... (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine... Can you imagine a world without the X-Files? Can you imagine trying to explain what the X-Files is? It is a cultural touchstone. It is a such an iconic thing. And yet, I know that until I started watching it, my knowledge was pretty lacking. I did not have, you know, a, a good shape. So what we're going to do is if you, for whatever reason, in 2023 or the future have no experience with the X-Files. Let's just rectify that real quick. The X-Files ran from 1993 to 2002. It had nine seasons, and then there was a revival 10th season in 2016 and an 11th in 2018. It was created by Chris Carter and... There were also a couple of movies, The X-Files Fight the Future, 1998, and The X-Files I Want to Believe, 2008. I cannot say that I would recommend Fight the Future. I haven't seen I Want to Believe, but uh, Fight the Future is not great. (laughs) I have seen both, but I don't remember either. The thing about The X-Files is 1993, it came out and... My mom was watching it all through my childhood. I was born in 94. So this was running in the background of my house pretty much for the entirety of my true childhood. So as opposed to your false childhood. (laughs) Well, I don't know. 2002. I must have been second grade. Okay. So I guess I was still a child a little bit past 2002, but I said true. That's the year we met. So that was my true childhood before you (laughs) came into the picture. Oh, my God. You came in and told me that fairies are real, and I was no longer 
a true child. I was an initiate. Or were you of a- the X Files? <laughs> this is terrible. This is really bad. <laughs> okay, so what is the X Files about? Quest. I feel like I'm doing a bad group presentation in school. The X-Files follows special agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully as they investigate FBI cases that involve supernatural, paranormal, or otherwise extraordinary occurrences. Mulder is the perpetual believer, always ready to explain the unexplainable with outlandish theories, while Scully is the inconvincible skeptic, unwilling to accept Mulder's hypotheses in favor of a more procedural, scientific approach. So it's called the X-Files because it's kind of like like the X-Factor, like that unexplained yeah, fill-in-the-blank. They are literally files that have been classified as unsolvable and not in a, like, not in the conventional sense of, like, somebody has to come back to this later, but kind of in a, there are too many inconsistencies, it's too aberrant, too many anomalies, it just can't be done. And there are jokes, oh man, there's one really good one where where Scully makes fun of, like, mantis men, and then Mulder comes back with, like, no, mantis men would be filed under M, or something stupid like that. (laughs) The lizard baby was born nowhere near Lake Okoboji. Of course. (laughs) And also, the reason that we have decided to do this episode is because this year is the 30th birthday of the X-Files. Which means it's one year away from my 30th birthday. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been 30? (laughs) A while. A file. (laughs) Okay, next. So we're talking about an episode from season four called Elegy. There are multiple episodes that involve ghosts and apparitions and we thought this one would be interesting to talk about and spooky spooky because we are spooky molder recording this in october in the spooky season there's a bug on you (laughs) the mantis men (laughs) Ah! (gasps) elegy to put it in the best possible light is kind of just a meandering episode it will get into criticism of it but this plot is a roller coaster it's a little bit convoluted although in certain ways you want an x-files plot to be convoluted and a roller coaster because a lot of the episodes are really about the slow unfolding of a very strange mystery that has a lot of red herrings and false lines of research and all sorts of things. So there's definitely an element to that. Right. The X-Files is very formulaic. This Mm -hmm. episode, I would say, deviates from the formula not as some of the most famous episodes do. It's just more in service of a whodunit kind of narrative that it does that Mm -hmm. but it does have our general arc of string of deaths that are unexplained a suspect Mulder has a theory tailors his theory and at the end turns out to be right more or less yeah 
So I did my best to write a synopsis of this that was a lot shorter than the Wikipedia synopsis, which is, I think, maybe six paragraphs long. (laughs) Of course it is. Something like that. So I'm not going to get into every single detail, but I'm going to give more or less a synopsis of what happens in this episode. And I'm sure there will be parts that we will explain or reference if there are details that come up that I didn't mention here. Here's the basic synopsis. Angie Pintero, a bowling alley owner, discovers a badly injured young woman wedged inside the pin setter. When he runs out to get help, he discovers a crowd around the body of the same woman he just saw inside. Agent Mulder and Agent Scully begin to investigate this case as part of a series of similar murders recently reported in the area. Mulder finds the words, she is me, written on the bowling lanes beneath the place where Angie saw the body. The phrase comes up repeatedly throughout the episode as the impossible last words of a victim whose larynx was cut, as creepy blood lettering on a bathroom mirror, and as words impulsively repeated by suspect Harold Spuler. Harold is a man living with autism, and he lives in a psychiatric care facility. Initially, the agents and local police suspect him of murder because he works at the bowling alley, has some knowledge of the victims, and has some of the compulsive behaviors that Scully associates with the murder pattern. During the investigation, Harold sees the ghost of his boss, Mr. Pintero. Moments later, Mr. Pintero is found dead from a heart attack. Mulder suggests that Harold's autism gives him the special ability to interface with the spirit world. More on that later. He also points out that every person in this case who saw an apparition was about to die themselves. He calls Scully and asks her to examine Harold's physical health. But wait, where was Scully this whole time? Well, earlier in the episode... (laughs) Not convoluted at all. Earlier in the episode, she went on a break to seek medical attention for a nosebleed. She's been diagnosed with cancer in an earlier episode and doesn't want to take any risks. Also, she saw the ghost in the ladies' room and she is me written in blood on the mirror. So she sees her therapist. She talks about how her fear might be starting to get to her. She does not talk about exactly what she sees with the therapist, but she is worried. Is this a harbinger of her own death? She doesn't tell anyone the details about this experience, especially Mulder. And then more things happen. (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk about them. And it turns out that the killer is not Harold, but one of the doctors at the psychiatric facility, Nurse Innes. The motive? Scully suspects that it's because her husband left her for a younger woman and she hates that Harold is in love with the ladies who frequent the bowling alley. He has all these pictures of them in his room where he lives with... Yeah, stashed in a book. Yeah. And then also it comes to light that Innes is just extremely ableist. She doesn't particularly like the job that she has. And also we watch her taunt Harold based on his disability yeah and love for the girls yeah and i think she also calls him ugly yeah she calls him a toad a toad that's nice so scully goes to question the nurse and the nurse attacks her with a scalpel which scully says might be the murder weapon and scully disables the nurse 
by shooting her in the shoulder and the noise of the gun attracts help. And then Harold is found dead. (laughs) And we really never receive any explanation why. It is speculated that it might have something to do with a pre-existing medical condition, though Scully has already looked at his medical file. Scully and Mulder have a heart-to-heart about her being honest about how she's feeling in the wake of her diagnosis, and she finally opens up to Mulder about her seeing the apparition in the bathroom. They hope she's not going to die. He says something really ominous, like, I really hope that it's wrong or something, you know. (laughs) The doctor said I was fine. I hope that's the truth. She goes off to her car and she's clearly emotionally distraught. And then in the rear view mirror, she sees Harold in the back seat and she looks back and he's gone. The end. Yeah. (laughs) So before we get into our reactions... Talk about production for a hot second. Elegy was written by John Shaban. Shaban? Hmm. I don't know. I really hope it's John Shaban. I, I was um, just getting on my students' case cases about how when they give presentations and there are things they don't know how to pronounce, they have no excuse because they can go on YouTube and look up how to pronounce names and words. So I was planning on going and looking for an interview with this guy and making sure I knew how to say his name before this. But then I had to make banana muffins for the week. And um, I was very, very tired. So now we're looking up how to say John Shaban. I hate right now. I hate on the same vein as your students, though, I would generally give students, you know, more leeway when podcasters are like, I hope I'm pronouncing this. These right. kids have had weeks, weeks to research this stuff. And they go up and they read the slides for the first time out loud in front of a class of 35 other people. I have no sympathy. And I hope you're listening. (laughs) Children. (laughs) We just went out of our way to do the research. It took about a two-second YouTube search. (laughs) And it was nothing that we had considered as a possibility. It's apparently John Sheban. She'd been done already done had herses, as RuPaul would unfortunately say. So Elegy was written by John Sheban, who was also story editor for the X-Files, and it was directed by James Charleston, High Sisters. This all comes from the official guide to the X-Files, I want to believe, by Andy Meisler. So the episode began, as all great things, as an index card with the words Haunted Bowling Alley, and it just sat on a bulletin board. And it took a year to materialize into an actual concept beyond that. Incidentally, this is also how we come up with episode concepts. (laughs) And only after the filming of season four, episode 11, Memento Mori, in which Scully's cancer plotline is established after being introduced in Leonard Betts, that they really came up with what they wanted to do with this episode. It really came into being because... They thought of the haunting as a means of moving forward in Scully's character arc with relation to her cancer. And John Sheban shared an anecdote that inspired the story as well. His father-in-law was dying of terminal cancer. Quote, 
This was near the end, and he was very sick. Jerry kept looking away from us, then at Janet, and then he said, How many people are in the room? My wife said, There's just me and John. And he looked over to the other side of the room, then looked back to us, and finally just said, Okay. So this introduced the idea that a dying person might be able to, quote, look through the cracks, so to speak, into the next world, end quote. Thus, it was selected as part of Scully's cancer journey. And then Harold Spuler was inspired by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If that wasn't extremely obvious. Right. And the actor, Stephen M. Porter, is, quote, totally non-disabled, which maybe in 1997 would have been fine, but now is uh, not great. And Porter researched the character at the mental hospitals and uh, adult group homes. So when I watch episodes of The X-Files, I write a two-word summary of whatever stood out to me the most for each episode. You are such a fucking dork. (laughs) I know. It's just a a little, I don't know why it started. I cannot recall. It started when I was in college watching it for the first time. I love that, though. I, I really do. And so the synopsis for this episode first was spooky autism. But then when I watched the whole thing... I changed it and it became Nurse Wretched. Yeah, and actually that arc is going to have a lot to do with how I saw this episode as well. And we'll come back to that. Yeah, and and like we're going to get into our reactions in a second. I will say that the first time I watched it, the character Nurse Innes, who is clearly inspired by Nurse Ratched, there's a reason it's Wretched and not Ratched, is like so random it feels so out of place in the overall arc that she was our killer yeah so that's why that stood out to me most it should have been instead of she is me it should have been who is she who is she (laughs) who is she who is she drag her slay her now the funny thing is we set out on this episode to be research light and to me that meant that i could do all the research in one day as opposed to weeks say yeah and like for your information where the document for ghostbusters our most recent two-part episode i had 23 pages of notes this was eight that's pretty good but i still had more sources than i expected to have so i own this book called uh monsters of the week the complete critical companion to the x-files by zach handlin and emily st james They switch off who is writing about which episode. Also, just to be clear, Emily St. James is a trans woman. This was published pre-transition, so it is published under a different name. So Emily St. James wrote Bowling Alone, in which she is me, which is her analysis of Elegy. She says, The biggest problem with Elegy is that its portrayal of autism is offensive at worst and just plain idiotic at best. The second biggest problem is that the whodunit makes absolutely no goddamn sense, unless you conclude that writer John Sheban decided he simply had to copy the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as much as possible. And then the third problem that Emily St. James outlines is that, quote, it collapses under the weight of its ideas. It's interesting. I think I came across this same essay or article, but as published in the AV Club. Mm-hmm. I knew I recognized that name. And I was thinking, ah, oh, that I saw that quote also. What is that from? So we found the same thing through different nice. publications. And I think this is so accurate. It's 
ridiculous. The episode is ridiculous. The characters are so caricatured. And I think, and I, I think I'm not alone in this, the saving grace is Scully's, not even her cancer story, but her, her arc. Her arc and her, her, the opportunity she has to face her mortality and also face what she cannot know. Yeah. The X-Files at its worst, which is part of why it degrades in quality over time. And I mean, Monster of the Week episodes. We're not really going to talk about mythology episodes, I think, probably ever on this podcast. Mm-hmm. It becomes so much about the roles that Mulder and Scully play. Mulder as the believer, Scully as the skeptic. Mm-hmm. And just pitting them against each other as much as possible because Mulder has to be right by the end. But I think this is a good example of how the writers started to play with that formula in later seasons and how it became more about both of them experiencing skepticism and growing closer to each other as well. Yeah. And also a benefit of this episode, it is a rare example of a monster of the week episode that touches the mythology plot line because this season is pretty good for remembering Scully's cancer in Monster of the Week episodes. Mm-hmm. We were just discussing before we started recording how the episode Leonard bets about a man who eats tumors to uh, stay alive permanently. Yeah, I know. <laughs> is the way that Scully initially gets diagnosed. And it's pretty fascinating within that context so this does give them more room for emotional growth even outside of our normal will they won't they fun fact the x-files is one of the first examples of the word shipping if not the well that's funny because i was just about to bring up the fact that when i saw this for the first time i was well i was probably a child but when i watched it and actually understood what was going on I was probably an adolescent, and I was definitely way more invested in what was going on between Scully and Mulder than I was in the integrity of the plot. And I also, I think I've always just felt like these monster episodes are so hokey that even if there's a ridiculous, stupid ending, they're allowed to do that because it's serialized television. And so... I'm more invested in, like, how did they go beyond that by creating these incredible characters than, like, did this make sense? Which it kind of does. So maybe let's <laughs> let's move on and talk about that. <laughs> I just want to say for a second that I was temporarily distracted when you used the word hokey because there is an episode where a record of the hokey pokey is an important <laughs> plot element it is one of the worst episodes and it was written by stephen king no kidding and it's called it's about a haunted doll and the haunted doll's name is chinga and i just want to know how any spanish speaker did not like catch that so we got ghosts yeah we better. <laughs> Otherwise, we've got, we've got to stop this podcast right now. <laughs> Goodbye. And one of Mulder's theories pretty early on, which remains 
true is that these ghosts are death omens. So we're going to talk about death omens and their relationships with superstition and grief. Really cheery stuff on ghosts for people too. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the details of the haunting in order to get into this. What are ghosts? What are frogs? So the spirits of recently murdered women appear to Harold Spuler. Harold Spuler. <laughs> You you gotta stop. I think it might be time to take a break from German Duolingo. My streak is so high. The spirits of recently murdered women appear to Harold Spuler at the time of their deaths, which is already a departure from your run-of-the-mill ghost. Normally, it comes a while after. Yeah. The episode tries to explain this as originating from a psychic or pre-conscious bond he shares with them, perhaps. But it remains unclear. I was just thinking about this last night, and it's like, is that why Harold is obsessed with these women? Not because he has a crush on them, but then is Nurse Innes killing them because of his fixation on them? Like, it starts to become a little bit chicken and egg. Yeah, I also don't totally understand how Scully has a psychic or pre-conscious bond with the woman she sees right and that's also really confusing because mr pintero and scully see apparitions at times and Mulder does later posit that instead of the psychic or pre-conscious bond the apparitions appear because the viewer is close to death themselves mm-hmm. hence mr pintero and scully But I don't think that does explain anything, really, because Scully, like, remains close to death. Right. Because she has terminal cancer. We'll talk about how terminal that was. Mm Mm-hmm. So why do these only happen around Harold? Like, why does she not, if if the veil remains thin, why does that not continue throughout her diagnosis? And the answer is because it's a Monster of the Week episode. It has to end. Yeah. Well, also, I wonder if it has to do with the circumstances of the killer like who the killer is once once she stops killing this particular like bout of harbinger ghosts stop appearing and maybe it's happening somewhere else in the world we can explain it away if we want to but it is a little fuzzy yeah it seems like they kind of just had to finish writing the episode and put it out eventually you know (laughs) right well i so literally the way i have it written here which i just saw somebody talking about how this is like one of the shadiest things you can do in academic writing is i wrote it's tempting to explain the haunting as relating to the serial killing that these apparitions are visiting harold as an incentive to get their killer caught i love when that happens in media Uh when like i mean that's literally hamlet right Mm mm-hmm if that were the case, why does Harold see Mr. Pintero's ghost when he dies of a narratively convenient heart attack? Why does Scully see Harold's ghost at the end of the episode? Those right. are not related to these serial killings. I-, I guess you could ask the question, you know, what does it mean to have a psychic or preconscious bond? What does it mean? Please tell me. <laughs> Because that's just so vague. We don't get into that. I think it shouldn't have been brought up. We're just asking the questions. (laughs) I also was very excited because I don't think that this has come up yet in our canon of Ghosts for People 2 hauntings. But there's also haunted machinery. Yeah. And it remains busted 
throughout the episode, they ask later, uh, oh, have you ever gotten lane six working? But it doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is not really a critique. It's just a, a question I have. Like, there was no woman caught in the machinery at lane six. She was actually dead across the street. So uh-huh. why is the machinery not working? Yeah, I I kind of assumed, I didn't even really think about this, but my assumption when I was watching the episode was just that he didn't want to go back there mm. and get everything yeah. up and running again. But why was it Why was it not working in the first with, place? When it was just a ghost with an assumably incorporeal form, you know? That being said, she is me does actually appear on the lane. Yeah. So there is some sort of physical manifestation yeah. that goes on there, which might be the broken machinery and the she is me written yeah. on the floor. I, just, I, I I never realized it, but I do love that trope of like the machinery gets like electronics and so on yeah. and so forth get messed up. There was also, I totally forgot to put this in my notes, but a recurring thing that I saw in the things I was reading that referred to the bowling alley as a setting as like nostalgic and like creating a sort of time travel. Hmm. And I do think that bowling alleys are generally associated with a kind of 1950s throwback. Yeah. And I do associate the 90s with a 1950s throwback. But to me, a bowling alley is just kind of a standard thing that exists like a bar or a restaurant kind of a thing so it's not like a like a five and dime or a an automat that like kind of died or transformed yeah. there is something distinctly americana about yes, a bowling alley though that's true so maybe that's part of it but also what you're saying suggests to me that it is something that started off as an americana mid-century icon and became timeless Ooh, maybe maybe so it was just interesting to me like we're not going to explore this further but like the idea of bowling alley is kind of always already haunted hmm. <laughs> just because haunted, of the yeah, by the history exactly it's such a bizarre thing and that's i think why the notion of haunted bowling alley is a an interesting and unique concept for an episode it just maybe could have been a better episode there's also i think the perfect situation where there's only certain places you're allowed to walk and and go in a bowling alley and that they end up crossing over into the machinery of the bowling alley which is like you know passing a threshold going into the the mystery of it you know i'm one of those people who has horrible dreams about the machinery beneath water rides you know about that that's a thing that's like multiple people have it's a thing there's a fear of like underwater machinery that's obviously based on my tone and response a thing i've never heard of before I only looked it up because I had had those dreams and yeah. I was thinking, oh, this this can't be just me. It sounds very defunct land and also backrooms. Totally. Are you familiar with backrooms? No, I know defunct land, obviously, but... Backrooms, 
I don't know if it's ghostly enough to ever be covered on the episode, but it's this kind of almost creepypasta spinoff of this idea of, like, liminal spaces and, like, the, what's it called at Disneyland? Where the cast members go only? Backstage. backstage. This kind of, like, corporate backstage with sort of house of leaves-esque like it just goes on and on forever element that sounds so up my alley my bowling alley Ah! in that creepypasta (laughs) way it's a kind of like collaborative no true canon just people contribute and make their own things Mm -hmm. like open source fiction sort of thing yeah anyway what i also thought was funny was that in a very classic gothic way this episode does have a random abandoned building next to the bowling alley which is part of how harold is able to get into the bowling alley's back rooms right and one more thing just that unsettled me (laughs) That maybe if I watched it again, it would make sense, but possibly not. I wrote in the synopsis that Harold works at the bowling alley, but I think really he just comes in and organizes the shoes and is not a paid employee. Is that is that right? No, he is. He is? They say outright that because he stays at the psychiatric facility electively, that he can come and go as he pleases. Oh, that's right. Which is part of why he is able to hold a job. So he doesn't just sneak in through the warehouse, organize the shoes, say hi to Mr. Pintero and leave. <laughs> Correct. Okay, he that's is good. an actual employee. That's good. We just never do see him at work. But the first scene shows Harold having stayed too late and getting dismissed for the night because his obsessive compulsive qualities are causing him to obsess over a specific task and right. take too long. So the idea that he's been on the clock too long mm-hmm. is oh, that's right. that's material. Right. Okay. I'm I watched the first half of this episode while on the treadmill at the gym. So <laughs> You have to stop right now. <laughs> so looking at all of these details of the haunting, we can see that it maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And ultimately, it looks like the answer is that there isn't a consistent logic behind the hauntings that they mostly just serve to tell the episode's story. The central conceit of this story is the idea of these omens. Yes. So I was desperately trying to find something that I could read about death omens kind of in general and their meaning. And most of the things were like either specifically about ancient Rome or about them in a specific work of culture. I really wanted them in like Irish culture. And there's a lot of scholarship on Irish culture, but what I could find was not that, whatever. And I read a piece by Fanny D. Bergen, W.M. Beauchamp, and W.W. Newell called Current Superstitions 1 and 2, Omens of Death. But how current? Well, it was written in 1889. That is right, 1889. Were there more than just two current superstitions or these like current superstition number one and current superstition number two will come back in a few months and report back on the more current so in part one they covered 50 i believe that had been sent in by readers in part two they covered a couple more that they felt helped expand the topic in part two they did more analysis it wasn't really relevant and then they started talking about 
superstitions in children, which we will get into a little bit. Mm -hmm. However, because this is folklore studies from 1889, I took this with a grain of salt because, duh. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that they note is that death is sometimes anthropomorphized as a white woman, not that kind of white woman. The authors consider this a remnant from pagan beliefs. That was one of the things that I had trouble validating because they were talking about a belief from a province in Germany, but then the deity that they brought up was Slavic, and I don't feel like there's a lot of Slavic religion in Germany. Yeah. Although this idea of the white woman carries on into contemporary scholarship and definitely is seen in folklore. Yes. And so white women are considered a portent of death, and we don't mean Karens. These white women... Although... These white women can include gray ladies, washerwomen, and, of course, the iconic banshee. Sometimes these figures have been tied to the fates, the norns, the myrai. Mulder identifies the ghosts of elegy as, quote, disembodied souls, apparitions fetches, and wraiths. The fetch, like the banshee and the panyi, Irish is not a language I speak, comes from Irish folklore. It is described as an apparition of a still-living person that appears to presage their death. What I thought was also interesting and noteworthy was that at one point, Mulder seems to find the fact that the ghosts are trying to communicate as mutually exclusive with defining them as a ghost, which is just, like, folklorically bullshit. I don't even remember that. It's almost like I didn't want to hear it because it didn't make sense. (laughs) But you know what's interesting about this? It kind of shows the inconsistency, or maybe, maybe rather than inconsistency, just vagueness of what these apparitions are. Because if it is a fetch, it makes sense in the case of... Mr. Pintero seeing the woman in the bowling alley, but it doesn't make sense in terms of Scully seeing Harold in the car at the end. Yes. And also, a thing that I want to point out is I'm not listing a bunch of like synonyms that Mulder uses. It is the evolution of his theory. Every episode of the X-Files is about the evolution of Mulder's theory. Right. Could it be a disembodied soul? Could it be a fetch? Could it be a wraith? That's kind of where it's going. And as far as I could understand, again, I couldn't find good research on this. Fetch and Wraith do seem to be synonymous. Wikipedia, I know, asserts that Wraith is the British equivalent, but I saw some inconsistency there. We're going to go with Fetch today. That is so Fetch. (laughs) Thank you, Gretchen Wieners. So one superstition collected by Bergen at Alia, states, the person on whom the eyes of a dying person last rest will be the first to die. And that really reminded me of the way that this haunting works. Wow, it's like the twisted version of throwing your bouquet. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) By and large, what I found in their collection of superstitions was that they worked to affect the stigmatization and compartmentalization of death. Many of the death omens they recorded followed a logic that to behold the dead would cause one's own death, and we'll get into that more. 
My central research question for this episode was what is the function of a death portent? Many of the superstitions collected in that aforementioned article, such as covering the mirrors in a house where someone has died, white horses drawing a hearse, doing laundry on New Year's Eve, are prescriptive. So you don't want to see the reflection of the deceased, so you cover the mirrors. You can hire different horses. Right. And you can just not do your laundry that day. So it creates a sense of control over death. Mm -hmm. If you do or you don't do this thing, then no one's going to die. Right. But other death portents in culture are completely out of the viewer's control. Like, I believe in ancient Mesoamerican culture to see an owl was a death portent. And I'm sure that exists outside there because owls are generally considered spooky. So the fetch is visiting Harold. He can't do anything about that. Right. So what's the cultural function there? I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily have an answer either. But I wonder if it is in some ways a way of telling a story around uncertainty and and creating some sort of narrative that's not necessarily comforting, but provides a narrative when it comes to how we feel about the uncertainty of death, that it is around any corner and you might be warned before you can really do anything about it. Yeah, I like that. I had not considered that. See, that's why. This is why we got to talk. <laughs> this is why we, why we pod. No, that's, this is why we cast. <laughs> so, in discussion of the approach of death, let's talk about grief. Let's talk about grief. <laughs> okay, let's talk about grief. So the most famous scholarship on grief, which you listener are probably unwittingly aware of, comes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She published On Death and Dying in 1969, in which she introduced her theory of the five stages of grief, also called the Kubler-Ross model. Notably, so when you've heard of it, it's always in a context of... People talking about how they grieve for others who have died. And often, I feel like in media, a lot of the time, maybe it's because I just have consumed a lot of children's media, but it's also like not even about a person's dying. It's about like loss of something else sometimes. Yeah, it has definitely been embedded in pop culture and oftentimes used in ways that have nothing to do with its original intent. Exactly. And its original intent was describing how dying people confront their own death not outlining the grieving process of the bereaved. And that's pretty significant for discussing elegy, given mm -hmm. Scully. Also, Kubler-Ross expressed that these stages do not occur in a linear, predictable fashion, which is just worth knowing if you're going to think about her model. So what's her model? What are our five stages, Annabelle? Number one, denial. That's not the first stage. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Would you just let me give you the five stages of grief? Could you just shut up for a second? Number two is anger. This is the stupidest thing we've ever done. I think that our, our introduction today was worse. <laughs> Number three is bargaining. Do you think I could finish the last two? 
Would that be okay with you? I mean, you can do it. Maybe, how about you do number four and I'll do number five? We're going to be grieving this podcast soon. <laughs> number four is depression. It's what? It's what? Number four is depression. And number five is acceptance. We have before us, you can't see it. Some charts, some graphs, some grids. One of them has a very funny typo to me where it says carthasis instead of catharsis. Ooh, carthasis. A thing that I did appreciate about these is one of them starts to approach kind of the Aristotelian model of rising action, climax, falling action, denouement. Another one is like a spiral. Also, the Aristotelian one kind of reminds me a little bit of even, um, I know that's really supposed to be a circle, but like the hero's journey uh-huh. from Campbell? Campbell, yeah. Joseph Campbell. And because it, there's kind of a descent in it into the, the underworld. Also, I just got to say, one of them looks like it's a grief spiral. Oh, shit. This is probably going to be so unsatisfying for listeners like because they can't see it and we can't really describe yeah. what we're seeing. But I was just I guess I was wondering how relevant any of this was to the structure of the plot. But just looking at the Kubler-Ross model in abstract, I hadn't considered the idea of catharsis, mm. which I think is an important thing for Scully's journey in this episode. Mm-hmm. Catharsis is a release of emotional tension after an overwhelming vicarious experience resulting in the purging or purification of the emotions. And that is definitely going to be important in the confrontation with one's own demise. Yeah, and catharsis comes from Greek tragedy. And if I remember correctly, catharsis was first written about by Aristotle, who talks about how tragedy can allow people to release emotional tension, as opposed to Plato, who thought that poetry and fictional storytelling in general were dangerous because they were lies and they would drive people mad. Those Greeks, man. I know. But now I think it's pretty widely accepted in contemporary media culture that watching something scary or dramatic or sad or listening to music that has similar qualities can be a way for us to release tension. Yeah. And what's interesting also is that within this episode, while obviously the viewer may have, you know, a certain experience with relation to their emotions and grief and mortality and their feelings about Scully, I would probably structure this as an effect of catharsis, almost like the sublime, the encounter with the supernatural creating... Mm -hmm a sort of possibility of emotional purgation. Yeah. What stages of grief do you think Scully is in the most in this episode? I think it's probably mostly 
denial. I think it's mostly that she is struggling with denial as she tries to place the fetch that she views in her worldview, in her conception of herself. Mm -hmm. I can't really spot any of the others except obviously because the episode has to reach a conclusion, a kind of acceptance. She has a moment of acceptance when she is crying in the parking lot alone, which is often how you find yourself accepting your mortality. <laughs> it's the best place to cry. That's not true, but it's a common place to cry. Oh, I've, I've cried in parking lots a lot. I obviously have had this experience. <laughs> There's something about all that asphalt. Yeah. You know what? It's a liminal space. Wow. Oh, it sure is. Yeah, it's like you exit the party and you lean on the car and cry. You exit the hospital and lean on the car and cry. So let's return to those dastardly poets. Uh, Why is this called elegy? What is an elegy, English teacher? An elegy is a mournful or plaintive poem, a funeral song. A poem of lamentation. So an elegy is this emotional expression of feeling towards something lost. Usually it has to do with a person's death. But there are also elegies about other types of loss in life. And fun fact, I was given an assignment in seventh grade to write an elegy you know those seventh graders have a lot to be mournful of you know what my elegy was about never having lost anything really important <laughs> i, I kind was, of it remember was, this it was an elegy for my lack of loss I... Be because i thought that if i had experienced some horrible tragedy it would have made me a better person in seventh grade that was my, that was my, the thesis, the emotional center of my poem. You know, what's very funny is that will relate to something that's coming up later. <laughs> I also do have a vague recollection of this. It is so very you. I think one of the lines was, um, today I mourn the loss of loss in my life. I think it might be good for me, but it's not there. I never lost a friend and cared. So a thing that I found amusing was that Wiktionary was giving a mnemonic for how to differentiate an elegy from a eulogy. It said that an elegy laments where a eulogy praises, hmm. with the Greek prefix eu meaning good. Now, I was trying to place you in any other word, and the first one that came to mind was euthanasia, which does mean good dying. Eugenics. Good genes. Bad practice. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, 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 yes. We're talking about this because this is the title of, yeah. of the episode. And X-Files titles are often a little bit roundabout in like why they are the name of that thing. They're not always stated in the episode. No one ever, ever states the word elegy in well, this episode. And no one was expecting anybody to really have access to the titles, right? At the time when it was on TV, it would have just 
been in the backlogs of the the would studio, been, right? And, uh, it would have been in the TV guide. Oh, the TV guide. That's right. And I mean, this was like a day of you know print media fandom. That's why oh, there are so right. many critical companions to the X Files. So I take that back. Do you know Samuel Terrell Coleridge? Mm-hmm. His name was familiar to me, but I couldn't place him. He was one of the major romantic poets. Cool. Yeah. Coleridge, whom I've just been informed is one of the major romantic poets. Indeed. Has this beautiful quote about elegies that I found on Wikipedia that I'm not going to read in its length because the grammar was also a little bit confusing to me. But he does say specifically that the elegy must treat of no subject for itself, but always and exclusively with reference to the poet. And it is important that, according to him, the elegy specifically expresses the effect of the loss upon the speaker. And that is a very romantic poet thing to say. Um, A lot of Coleridge's work is him kind of creating a poetics that is particular to the speaker being the poet and, you know, an expressiveness that comes out of the the poet and, and how creativity interacts with big emotions, the sublime and all of these things. And so it makes sense that he would focus on the poet himself rather than what's being remembered. Yeah, that makes sense. And we'll get into this in a pretty short while but a thing that stood out to me is there is no regard for the families of these victims of this serial killer oh there is they're not even involved at all in the episode right and so there's never that that idea of you know like oh she had so much left to give she had so much to live for it's never a thought about like this person these victims loss from the world or how that affects the community around it is more about what are frogs that's what it's about well at the end of the day i think it's about scully and her that's true confronting the loss of herself and i feel like that's really our elegy right right it's it's an elegy for the mortality or the 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 death of scully yeah and she's she's facing her mortality and of course she does this through the supernatural and a case that she's on because yeah. Scully is all about work. Yeah. And thereby, and this is kind of one of my theses for this episode, but the episode is really just in all a meditation on mortality. Mm-hmm. So apparently, according to the X-Files wiki, which is not Wikipedia, but, you know, the fan site, there were two alternative titles for this episode. The first title was Tulpa, then they changed it to Revenant, and then they finally settled on Elegy. And I thought this was interesting because I think the name changes show a difference in how they were trying to frame the ghosts in this episode. So uh, Tulpa originally comes from Tibetan Buddhist mysticism. As we discussed in our conversation about black-eyed girls. Yes. Yeah, the Adventure Time episode. See our ghosts and cartoons. Right. And then it inspired theosophists 
and became sort of a thing of its own in contemporary occultism where it's thought of as a manifestation of a thought form. So it's like an idea that becomes so big and so charged that it takes on a life of its own. And tulpas are so big and so charged and an idea that become a life of their own that the X-Files pursued the concept in a later episode, Arcadia. So maybe they tabled it and came back to it. But also, I think it's interesting that this was the original title for the episode because it says to me that the writers were trying to explore the relationship between what we perceive and the mind and seemingly external apparitions. Yeah. And and I think this is part of Scully's arc of belief in this episode where she she goes to her therapist and says, I saw something, but she doesn't say what. And she talks about how she thinks she might be stressed. She talks about the potential relationship between Mulder's theories and what she's what she, seeing. Exactly. That because these things have been suggested to her, that might be why she is seeing it, which is so scully. Totally. I would guess that maybe they changed the title because they felt like they could deal with this concept in a more creative way later, or because it gives too much credibility to these apparitions being in her mind or from her mind. Yeah. What also comes to my mind as we discuss this is a sort of thematic consistency because the episode in which she is diagnosed with cancer, as I stated earlier, is called Memento Mori. Mm-hmm. And so Memento Mori, an elegy, literally, I think the last section of notes I have is called Memento Mori. Right. So there's definitely... Caddish is another episode in this. <laughs> and let me say it has nothing to do with this, and it is not a great episode. Yeah, but... In terms of the titles and their relationship to death and memory, it goes. Yes. Kaddish. It goes, it goes, it goes, it goes. Guillotine. But before we go on, there was one other title which was Revenant. And that's the idea of like a spirit or a apparition that comes back following an absence or one who returns after death. The difference between Revenant and Ghost, my understanding, though this might be a more recent invention, is kind of that where the Ghost is incorporeal, the Revenant is usually more physical. And so obviously that doesn't make any sense for the episode. So they finally landed on Elegy, which seems fitting. Right, but Revenant literally is the gerund form of French revenir, meaning to return, to come back. So I can see at least the linguistic sense there. Right. But of course, like we said earlier, sometimes these ghosts seem to appear before the death, during the death, and after the death. Yeah. So I <laughs> I wrote in my notes i don't think that i have this in the slides that 
Mr. Pintero really goes for the Emmy when he's acting out that heart attack as a, as his <laughs> fetch because boy he's is trying he to make fetch happen grabbing his arm and grabbing his <laughs> chest while standing stick upright and I mean, I don't even know what the green screen effects would have been here yeah. to make these apparitions. But like, boy, howdy, it is laughable. Yeah. That being said, Harold in that moment, heartbreaking. Yes. he He's going for the Emmy yes. there. Well, which brings us <laughs> yes. for, so, right to spooky autism. Oh, Lord. I, for the record... When I say spooky autism, I am referring to this sort of literary trope. It's a problematic-ass literary trope. I do not really mean that autism is spooky. No. Well, this is like Spike Lee's The Magical Negro. It, it makes it, me think of it, definitely. It's it's the neurodivergent version of yeah. the magical indigenous person or the magical african-american or all of these the other where they are exoticized as having occult knowledge and experience because of their othered status exactly so emily st james writes for one thing, the idea of the magical, mentally handicapped person is one of the most cringeworthy and problematic of cliches. Because we get to know Harold for only a very short while, he doesn't get to be anything but a magical, mentally handicapped person. End quote. I give a little bit of room. I do think that the episode tries to depict people with mental disabilities in a sympathetic light. For example... There's genuine friendship and care that Pintero expresses toward Harold. Mm -hmm. And I never, it's never patronizing, I don't think. He's not always respectful of Harold's tics. Right. But he definitely really does care for him. Yeah. I both like and cringe at the character Chuck, that's Harold's roommate, his repetition of the phrase, I'm just a human being. Honestly, kind of iconic. It is, and it feels realistic, but it also feels like the writers really putting it in his mouth to make it resonate with the audience. Right. I'm a human being. And then there is Nurse Innes's villainous ableism that is expressed outright. That is the only time in the entire episode the R slur is ever uttered, mm -hmm. which is like pretty progressive for the 90s. Yeah. The fact that it is only used in a derogatory sense, like they understood, like, don't use this for people. Yeah. I feel like by the 90s, it was pretty well understood that you shouldn't be using that in a derogatory sense, but it was still very much a part of pop culture to use it. Like, I feel like when bullies used it in movies, it was supposed to have the sting because everyone knew you weren't supposed to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I might be wrong, though, because I have spoken to special education teachers who have said that it was pretty recent that a lot of the terminology changed. Yeah, I mean, I remember it being used both intentionally offensively and accidentally offensively let's say it like that yeah 
for my entire childhood and the baby boomers in my life are still struggling to stop even when they mean it in a clinical way let alone when they mean it in a a big air quotes around this guy's black eyed way oh boy (laughs) anyway regardless of any good intentions the writer's incorporation of an autistic character in this episode is problematic not that it is inherently problematic to portray autistic people they are part of the community they're part of life and they deserve to be represented but when depicted by holistic neurotypical people obviously that is not necessarily always going to be the best representation Even though Mulder remains assured throughout the episode that Harold is not the serial killer, the writing still leads the viewer to believe that Mulder may be wrong, specifically because of behaviors and the social status associated with Harold's autism and his obsessive-compulsive disorder. Like, the whole thing about the ring Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with anything, except... Unless Nurse Innes is intentionally framing him, and she does not seem that methodical. Yeah. The writers employ Harold's autism as a means of keeping the audience in the dark. His frequent inability or disinclination to communicate about his paranormal experiences allows him to remain a suspect for longer and keep the audience in suspense about the mystery we feel as an audience that we don't have access to the truth because he can't clearly communicate it to Mulder and Scully. And we we get that a little bit with his, I was going to say roommates, but it's he only has one roommate, but the other, the other people living at the facility, I think one of them is maybe compulsively lying and says i i did it or i know who the killer is and then goes no i don't right we have a whole scene very much steered by scully about how impressionable the autistic people are right which is very uncomfortable to watch yeah it does at least kind of bring in to question like methods of police interrogation Mm -hmm. but regardless yeah so there is a, a precedent in folklore for depicting people in liminal states as more prone to catching glimpses of the supernatural. And this frequently applies to children and adolescents. Bergen remarks on the impressionable nature of children with regard to belief. You could see the writing of this episode as using Harold's autism to make him less believable or... Right. What Bergen is saying is specifically that like children might see things in the world because media and culture have imprinted those on their minds Mm. and also i think that because children have that tendency when they do speak about experiences in their lives they are less likely to be believed by people around them specifically adults because well, did you really see that? Did that really happen? Or did that happen to a fictional character? Did that happen in your imagination? Yeah, and so unfortunately, if we follow this line of reasoning, that means that this episode is equating Harold with a child in a lot of ways, which is obviously 
a very problematic conception of autistic people. Right. And that's the thing that we hear about a lot, right? Like an autistic person being compared to a certain number of years of development of age. a child, despite this person being a certain age. That is not that. Right. But not even humoring that for a second, but just considering it allegorically, if we look at Harold as an allegorical child on the like intent of the writers. What I do find interesting is that then Elegy brings to mind several fairy tale tropes. You have the coming of age or loss of innocence as mm. Harold confronts the reality of death in his midst. You have the death of a parent with Pintero dying. Mm -hmm. And you also have the evil maternal figure with Nurse Innes, who is the only maternal figure in harold's life that we ever see yeah and all of those things as outlined in the uses of enchantment by bruno bettelheim kind of serve to create characters that allow the viewer especially the child to imprint upon to explore the narrative through their eyes and the loss of the parent the maternal figure who is not truly maternal both serve to give characters that like are usually children for example hansel and gretel as not having the dependency that a child normally has and being thrust out into the world on their own which then the child is able to see like someday i will have to see the world on my own because i will be an adult right when you think about harold's situation he is permanently reliant on others to take care of him though and so it's interesting that when he experiences the loss of innocence when he experiences the death of the parent quote-unquote the evil maternal figure he dies yeah <laughs> it's a tragic ending which is also arguably quite problematic right and i think that part of that has to do with the transference of point of view character to scully yeah it's also, I think, perhaps what would be the function of this problematic allegory is that Harold viewing these fetches is a sort of childish need to cast aside one's survivor's guilt. That, like, a child might feel like, Grandma died, but I'm still alive. Why is that? Am I at fault because I get to still be alive, but grandma is dead. And so being confronted with the dead, being accused of killing them mm -hmm. when he knows that he did not, I think that that's kind of the psychological issue that we are approaching here. That being said, I would say a lot of these tropes from fairy tales resonate with adults because not everybody works through these things as children. And I think we see that with Scully's stages of grief as well, that truly understanding what it means to come of age or to be in the world without parents or to, you know, search for a maternal figure where there is no good one. Like these are things that adults work through in their lives too. Yeah. And Bettelheim says in part that the whole evil maternal figure thing comes in part from that fear that the person who has been taking care of you will all of a sudden 
not take care of you anymore and that becomes converted in the child mind to a woman who does harm instead of nurtures Mm -hmm. so you can see another way in which harold is cast out into the world on his own so we've already name dropped wikipedia so i thought i'd just bring reddit into this also I thought that this was an interesting thread. It's called Elegy is a Terrible Episode, right? And it's the first thread that comes up if you search Elegy X-Files Reddit. (laughs) So there are a couple of user comments that I think don't excuse the way Harold's autism is depicted, but add some nuance to the conversation surrounding it. Um, So one of them is from echinoderm that it's spelled with a y instead of an i but echinoderms are that's the family that starfish belong to oh did you just look that up partially but i did know it okay thank you (laughs) patrick your genius is showing so user echinoderm points out that harold is not seeing ghosts because of his autism he's seeing ghosts because he's dying and that therefore this is not really an accurate depiction of magical neurodivergence, which this user does not use that term. That's my own addition. But I think this speaks to the fact that this is one of Mulder's theories. And I think the audience is supposed to be thinking that as well, because it is such a tired, familiar trope. And then in some sense, it gets undermined by the fact that Scully sees the ghost, that Mr. Pintero sees the ghost you know it's it's not like all surrounding harold it's an assumption that we make because of the cultural trope right that is interesting of course there's the fact that the writers still made the choice to make him autistic as a red herring which in many ways feels not dealt with totally i agree and then here's a username for you user wetness pensive suggests that the episode is representative of season four's thematic arc in which, quote, villains seek a form of purity, end quote. The season deals with, quote, a specific type of visceral prejudice and hate, end quote. So in this case, bigoted nurse Innes, quote, hates mentally defective people, end quote, and women. So in a sense, this person is making the case that the nurse is the hateful, prejudiced one. And to some extent, there's supposed to be a like a kind of redemption or exposed bigotry in this episode. And there's a clearing of Harold's name. Exactly. He's not the killer, even though Scully assumes he is at first because of his impulsive nature as she as she frames it and the the real killer is the person who is a bigot the person who has this internalized misogyny the person who calls harold a toad so i think those are interesting things to consider but of course again still pretty cringe yeah to to see this depiction of an autistic man used in that way Yes, and let's talk about the misogyny and let's talk about how Harold is used because 
part of this is literally that he is framed. Right. Which is, again, not really touched upon enough in the actual text of the episode. Mm -hmm. But there is a clear connection between Harold as a suspect and the identity of his victims. Nurse Innes taunts him about what she believes a one-sided attraction to pretty, neurotypical, or holistic women who would never return his affection due to his looks and his autism and his social status because of those things. Her attempt to frame him brings to mind rejection-based femicide, and that even is mentioned in the scene where Scully and Mulder sit in as the police begin to profile who they think is perpetrating these serial killings. And they mention that kind of standard idea that there is a man, a young man, killing women, and that those women probably represent a specific woman in his life or are just kind of archetypal woman. And that is why he is killing them. So Nurse Innes is a femcell? (laughs) (laughs) And you can see this concept within the episode that, well... Harold is autistic, he doesn't know how to interact with women, and he is acting out against them because of this, because he cannot get sexual satisfaction. You see similar analyses regarding Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Though the string of murdered women and their apparitions are the monster of the week, they receive little attention in the episode except as nearly anonymous victims. Their names are only ever stated in passing and in connection to their bowling scores. Right. Well, I mean, they are really just monstrous devices. They are not characters in their own right. So you're saying that women are devices? Yes. Literary. (laughs) (laughs) And then, like, given our earlier discussion of superstition, that these fetches are literal gray ladies, I think that this, like, semi-gray scale that they do is very effective, but also bizarre. Like, the one that Scully sees in the bathroom has blue jeans, Mm -hmm. and the college sweatshirt the yeah. logo is in color but she skin wise is gray right <laughs> clothes ghosts if you want to oh my god i know think more about that then all... uh, we have episodes all of it is also offset by red with all of the blood right so this connects them to the white women of death so it turns out that harold is not the killer the killer is Nurse Innes. But either way, we have a case of femicide. And femicide is the gender-based killing of women. There's so much scholarship on this, so many books, because it unfortunately happens (laughs) quite a bit. In fact, I would argue that a lot of serial killer media and serial killer documentation revolves around femicide. Right. One of the obstacles in recognizing femicide, says Wikipedia, is that in our culture, we recognize women as always already victim. And you can consider in true crime the missing white woman syndrome. Mm -hmm. You can also think about the kills in a slasher film. Right. The fetches in elegy are little more than female victim women defined solely by the violent ends with which they have met but 
then we find out that the killer was not this rejected autistic man. It was Nurse Innes. A rejected white woman. Taking autism pills. It's whatever so those are. It makes me insane. what are what are what are, what are autism pills? Can we just talk about this for a hot second? Because like Mulder does say we found that she was taking these pills and we saw a weird interaction of her telling Harold that the pills were poison, but I don't know if that's literal or mind games. It's kind of unclear. But also we find that out from his roommate. And yes. isn't his roommate the one who compulsively lies? No, we watch, we see her say, come on, Harold, time to take your poison. Oh, but yeah. I mean, that's, you know, a figure of speech right, people would use. Right. So I don't, I don't know what the episode wants me to think there. Right. But she has been taking his pills, we find out, after she has been caught. Yeah. And Scully, a medical doctor, as she will remind you. <laughs> I'm a medical doctor. I'm a medical doctor. You're a medical doctor. I am... A medical doctor. Well, I'm a medical doctor. I am a medical doctor. I'm a medical doctor. Has knowledge of these pills and that side effects of them could include violence and, like, increased impulsiveness. Mm -hmm. But then Harold, who has not been taking his pills, dies. And I feel like Scully, who has looked at his medical paperwork, if I understand correctly, would know if he had some pre-existing condition that he was medicated for. And I think that the denouement of this episode, with the exception of that scene in the car, is terrible. Yeah. It makes the writers clearly don't know what has happened. So they just give Mulder and Scully a lot of questions, hemming and hawing, and not sure about what's gone on. And so, like, Scully is straight up, like, it, it raises a flag for her. She's like, wait, what did he die of? I don't understand. There's no reason. Well, if you recall, she also says something really loaded and vague, which is that he died from what she took away from him, which could be the pills, could be the love. You have to understand that my reaction right there can pretty much only be described as Mrs. White's monologue in Clue, Flames on the Side of My Face, which I already <laughs> used in a previous episode. I'm, I just can't use it all the time, but that's how I feel. I'm a gay man. That's how we always You just feel. always have flames on the side of your face. <laughs> yeah, so it's. I think it calls to question also, like, how do we feel about... A woman potentially killing other women because she was cheated on. Like, right. that sounds like, I'm sorry, something a man would do. Well, and I mean, <laughs> I can see a criminal pathology of, like, envy that she's thrown away her life, but that these women could, you know, be leading lives that are not hers, where she right. feels doomed in this job that she hates and a marriage that fell apart. I did not remember until today any lines about her marriage. It's just generally that, like, a problem with the episode is if she's going to be the killer, then we need a better understanding of her criminal pathology. We, we don't even really see her until that scene at the end. Yeah, we see her once interacting far less caringly than the man running the home who mm -hmm. has been depicted as being very invested, very kind of touchy-feely. Yeah, protective um, of his patients, doesn't want Harold to be arrested. Yeah, like she's just kind of cold, but then it's not until the scene with Harold's pills that we actually get any unique characterization out of her. Right. And it's very 11th hour. 
Exactly. The problem is that these women who are our ghosts don't really have any purpose. They serve little purpose. There are readings to be found in their status as female ghosts, but it doesn't have much narrative importance except leading us down the garden path thinking that Harold is the killer, maybe. Something I'm starting to notice is that the two major TV tropes we have really make it so that the writers are relying on the audience's preconceived notions and prejudices to make this work. So we have to believe that women are the victims of serial killers and that they don't have much interest or value other than being these poor, helpless women, beautiful young girls who are cut off from the rest of their lives and their potential. And then we have the, you know, magical neurodivergent who is mysterious and can't tell us the truth because he can't be accessed but has some sort of you know magical connection to the other world if audiences just already believe these things to be true then the plot holes are a lot more invisible yes and i would add a third preconceived notion which is that the serial killer is a man is always a man that women are always his victim and that like Leatherface, like norman bates he's acting out of displaced sexual desire sexual feelings so when you then introduce this autistic character and you take into consideration people's notions of autistic people and their place in society that they're going to put those pieces together right yeah absolutely the x-files centers a lot around belief of course i mean i want to believe and when we talk about belief and the way that we interact with the world we are now reaching a very interesting part of my research attitudes toward death which is what i really think is central to the haunting here it plays into everything we've talked about Mm -hmm. and i read an article i loved this article i actually like recommend this if you are on jstor american attitudes to death by charles o jackson not on jstor i don't know if i i have a free account you can yeah oh yeah you, you get can, that's right you get yeah, access yeah, yeah. to you get access to 100 free articles a month <laughs> i forgot so jackson traces the changing attitudes toward death in america from its founding by colonizers on indigenous lands to the time of writing in the 1970s I'm not going to be exhaustive here. He is not exhaustive. It's only 15 pages, which is like for academic articles, a pretty easy read. Yeah. We'll give you broad strokes here. The first Puritan settlers in America couldn't shrink back from death due to its prevalence in daily life. Their religious beliefs described by Cyclone Covey. (laughs) Oh my God. This is amazing. I recently saw a meme that was like, create your Puritan name. And it was, I think, oh, it was the last emotion you felt and 
oh, what was it? It was like something you ate for breakfast or something. I oh, what was it? Okay, I could not find the pilgrim name generator meme, but if you do find it, please tell me, send it to me, and maybe if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Yes, or post it on the Tumblr, Instagram, whatever. So just to be clear, Cyclone Covey is a contemporary scholar. He is not a Puritan, (laughs) but it does kind of track. So anyway... He describes the religious beliefs of the Puritans as a pilgrimage mindset that through life you are going through the wilderness on your pilgrimage to reach the promised land of heaven with your boy JC. Got it. And so that assurance that there was an afterlife and you would get to hang out with <laughs> I hate when people call him oily Josh. What? Yeah, it's what Christ means. Christ means anointed with oil and Jesus means Joshua. That's disgusting. The pilgrims got to live their life and feel like, oh, yay, I'm going to hang out with my bestie Jesus. And there's an afterlife and I'll see everybody that I love there. As long as I'm part of the elect. (laughs) Yeah, that made it easier to be surrounded by death of dysentery and what have you. Right. So from the country's inception through to the 19th century, few, quote, could have got very far along in life without losing more than one person in their immediate circle of relatives and friends. You just did. You just somebody around you died. People died in childbirth. Children died in their adolescence. It just was all around you. So, like, of course people die. I know. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. Right. Also... The social structure of the period meant that a single death was a community loss, with the community helping the bereaved. This included dressing and attending to the body, constructing a coffin, transporting the body to the burial site, digging and filling the grave. So, like, death was something that everybody had to interact with in rather material ways. And then the grieving period was generally short because everybody's dying. (laughs) Right. Well, and also you've put so much energy and thought and ritual into the process of burying the dead with your community around you. There really is no opportunity for denial or pushing away the truth of it. And you go through that grieving process as as you bury your dead. I think sometimes... I'm getting ahead of this, I'm guessing. But I think sometimes in the contemporary world, people don't really have an opportunity to grieve in the moment because things are so impersonal. That is so funny. I actually did not. He does mention that. I didn't really touch upon that. But that was definitely brought up. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Jackson says, quote, the culturally proper place for death, it should be noted, was in the home with loved ones, including children, gathered to witness the final moments. Ideally, the dying person presided over the event in full knowledge of his condition. Until, can I guess, can I guess, can I guess? You can guess. The Civil War? He mentions that as a possibility. He doesn't really come down on either side. He's doing a little bit more of a lit review. Mm -hmm. He does note two shifts in the American culture around death. The first of which was a, quote, domestication and sentimentalization of death, which, quote, increased significantly the role of death and the dead in the world of the living in the 19th century. He argues that the 19th century saw a growing attachment to life. Live! That's the message! Live! Yes! 
life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. With death beautified and domesticated through an increasing tendency to hold on to the dead, as evinced through spiritualism, the culture of mourning, the rural cemetery movement, the rise of embalming, Mm-hmm. You got to hold on to your dead and pretend kind of that they hadn't died because, I mean, you can see an argument in the 19th century, like, of a kind of rise of Western ancestor worship, like a secularized almost ancestor oh, worship, you that's know? That's interesting, when you yeah. think about that. Yeah, yeah. And also, I don't know if this is in the article, but I'm thinking about haunted technology and some of our other episodes and how, in this case technology like embalming is giving people the opportunity to hold on to their dead but i think it's also driving people to be more jealous of the dead keeping them in their homes bringing them into the domestic sphere making more of a to-do about the funeral process and the memento mori of it all because there is this sense of a lack of control as technology is rapidly increasing in society, industrialization, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's working in both ways. It's it's giving people an opportunity to take photographs of their loved ones, to wear their hair. Indeed. And yet It's also creating more sentimentality because people need balance from the totally unsentimental industrial machine that they are living in in cities. Yes. And also, and this is going to come up in a second, but we've discussed the challenges to faith in the 19th century. Yes. So also kind of erecting this alternative means of afterlife mm-hmm. i think does help it's like in some ways secularized i mean there's spiritualism but there's also photographs and morning jewelry and the morning process of wearing the black to the gray to the purple right it's, and, a, it's social yeah picnicking in graveyards as part mm-hmm. of the rural cemetery movement so like it does just kind of become yeah like a social life with your dead relatives in a way. Yeah, it's like a secular social phenomenon that also overlaps with people's spiritual beliefs. Yeah. Or lack of spiritual beliefs as well. Yeah. It can be a comfort either way. And within all of this, Jackson describes, quote, the deceased would not really die for a long time to come. Mm. He also says, death and the dead, considerably groomed and polished, were assigned an increasingly substantial place in the lives of the living. However, at the end of the 19th century, and increasing in intensity with each decade of the 20th century, Jackson notes a, quote, major withdrawal on the part of the living from communion with and commitment to the dying and the dead. Death became alienated from life, and the world of the dead was essentially lost to the living. So what happened? He attributed this to, one, urbanization, which we were just talking about, two, advances in medical science and healthcare, and three, increased secularism. I was so tempted to describe all of this in detail, but it would just go on too long. I do also think it speaks for itself, and I think we can tie it into what's going on with Scully and, and dig into it in that way. Exactly. 
he does note that at the beginning of the 20th century, death was moved out of the home and the dying were increasingly segregated from the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. This also has to do with the rise of the death industry, which decreased the average person's interaction with death. The increased removal of the elderly from society and the family unit means that their deaths have less communal impact. So in other ways... In other words, death is being moved into hospitals, funeral homes, into the hands of professionals, and... Into homes for the elderly. Right. Outside of the intimate spaces of everyday life. Right. And you think back to the Puritans, where everybody is involved in some way in what's going on with this body and what's going on with this family, whereas nowadays... The family has little to do with what actually happens to the body. Mm -hmm. And he argues, maybe it's just my own personal experiences that I didn't really relate to this, but he argues that like, because medical science has moved death overwhelmingly into the elderly, that we have now segregated the elderly from most of daily life through retirement and retirement homes and things like that. So when an elderly person dies because they're not playing as much of a role in the community anymore, that it just doesn't affect anyone as much, including the family. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that seems like the greater cultural moment. And I I think that's still relevant. And I I think it has a lot to do with marketing as well. Like we're trying to push the elderly out of society because it reminds us that we won't always be able to be pretty and independent. Right. And I'm just thinking of all of the awful drug ads that there are. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. Let's bring this back to the episode yeah Yeah. as you hear this it's going to become very obvious where we're going jackson describes that in a secular society where the culture will no longer support the certainty of afterlife natural death and physical decomposition become too horrible to contemplate or discuss we know what happens when something is buried in culture exactly comes back as a monster And coming back to that idea of the dead presiding over their own death or the dying presiding over it. Yeah. He also points out a growing desire to withhold from the dying knowledge of the gravity of their condition, Mm. which we're seeing the cogs are turning. Yes. So Jackson writing in the 70s notes that a growing body of literature on death and dying in the mid 20th century could entail a shift in the American attitude toward death. Now, I do feel that nowadays there is a conversation on, quote, death positivity that probably did not exist 50 years ago, but I also do not think that we have made any substantial change in the way that we treat death. I think it's also very much still countercultural right now. Like, we, of course, are part of that conversation and we are consuming the media around death positivity but the only other people who i have spoken to about this are like other goths and sex workers and non-binary people and like you know like fringes margins fringe people orville peck (laughs) 
Yeah, I spoke to him about it just <laughs> just last week. And I would consider that death in the wake of COVID, where it, there was huge, I mean, was, continue to be huge amounts of death. Yeah. Coincide with, like, TikTok and the algorithm and the rise of, are you familiar with these at all? The K word and unalive. I know about unalive. The K word is that you don't get to say kill for the algorithm. Right. I also, I was watching, (laughs) shout out to Bussy Queen. I was watching her reviews of Drag Race and one queen has some costume that has fake blood all over it and dancing around the algorithm and its threat. And Bussy refers to this queen as having red liquid on her costume because she's afraid that saying blood is going to demonetize the video. So, like, that's a bit of where we are. Obviously, that doesn't stay for everyone and everything. You can say shit on a sitcom on TV, but influencers cannot say pandemic. They say panini or whatever, (laughs) and they can't say dead. I would also point out that although we have been in an era of extreme I was going to say extreme mortality. Extreme mortality. <laughs> but I also I feel like extreme mortality needs to be the name of my autobiography or something. But Your anyway. next tattoo. Yeah, yeah. That'll be across my chest. That's what I was imagining. Wow. Let's do it. But in all seriousness, right in the midst of so much death because of the pandemic we also were forced into mostly online social interactions and so so many people had to grieve their loved ones from afar i personally know people who had to attend zoom funerals at no fault of any person but like just the circumstances really forced us into a situation where death became even more alienated from our everyday lives while it was becoming so many people's realities, which is very confusing. Yeah, and we would be remiss, shout out to Nick for bringing this up in conversation last night, the rise of social justice, social media, and constant awareness, 24-hour news cycle of not only am I aware of deaths of COVID in this current time period, but also I am aware of every, you know, social uprising and every bridge collapse and train accident and fire and earthquake around the world and how many people died in that. Mm -hmm. And then I scroll to the next cat meme. And so you're being constantly barraged with death and dying Mm -hmm. and immediately moving on. And that's why I think that one of the key words of this episode is compartmentalization. Yeah. And that was one of my thoughts with regard to the superstitions that a lot of them regard proper etiquette around death and dying. And you close that off as much as possible. You do not interact with it very much. So that way you don't think about death anymore. That to continue to interact with death or interact with death in an inappropriate way threatens further death. So you monsterize it in the highest possible way so you can shut it out 
and make it go away and bury it, which, of course, leads to the Gothic. Right. And I think for Scully, death is something that she deals with in her profession all the time. And so she's been able to neutralize it because it's her job. But when it comes to her own mortality, she has not actually done the work to face it, which, again, I don't I don't know. Like, I don't think that's anybody's fault. That's it's not something that I think most of us truly, truly face until we're met with it. But I think that's something that's going on for her is the neutralization of death because she is a healthcare professional. Right. Well, and also I mean, she's a healthcare professional and also she works in violent crime. Right. Typically after the fact, you know, it's not preventative because that's not how things work in the United States. Right. It's always that there's already a victim or something like that. I think it's actually notable that Nurse Innes is wounded to prevent, not fatally. Yeah. She survives of all of our characters. She is the quote unquote major player to survive. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting concept that Scully does not aim to kill. Yeah. So the fetch is an elegy function to remind the living of the presence of death. In a world where death has been compartmentalized and stigmatized, these apparitions of the dying force the viewer to confront that death can never be wholly forgotten. And moreover, in Elegy, only people who are dying can view these fetches. The fetch is not only a reminder of death, she forces the viewer to confront their own dwindling mortality. And uh, this is so immaterial i love using that word in these episodes <laughs> but bergen at alia postulate that the death goddess slash white woman may even select the next person to die hmm. which is interesting when you think about the confusing circumstances under which harold passes right it's almost like they're freeing him which could yeah. be very ableist or it could be sympathetic in his kind of lack of an ability to cope right and then She Is Me. She Is Me bears a close resemblance to the classic epitaph. Remember, friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you will surely be. Prepare thyself to follow me. Because I was having trouble thinking of another meaning of She Is Me. Like, if we were focused more on the victims, uh -huh. then you could at least imagine them warning that like i am one in a string and more will come right but that's not what we're worried about and i generally find that though we've already talked about how this is not accurate the episode seems to structure the fetches as predominantly harold's visions but mainstream media generally shies away from cross-gender identification so why is the phrase she is me with this male character well and you could think of it as like ha don't you get it surprise a woman is the killer <laughs> i didn't even think of that yeah. yeah i thought of that as one of the possibilities but i think it's more likely that she is me is referring to scully and these apparitions are essentially saying to scully 
as I am now, you will surely be. Yeah, exactly. Which is another weird part of the episode that I feel could be more prominent. Just the phrase. I had not yet rewatched it and I was reading Emily St. James' critique of the episode uh-huh. and where she has a little tagline in which blah for everyone in which she is me and i was like i that doesn't mean anything to me i don't remember any you know like i guess i'll see what that means uh-huh. and then she gets into the repetition of the phrase and i was like oh my god i completely forgot about yeah, that Yeah, like this is everywhere right well i feel like again tropes that repetition of a phrase or something being written in blood on the mirror is such a trope that what is written almost doesn't matter yeah it's just like oh there's a phrase repeated it's your mirror message when you're eliminated on drag race (laughs) what's there to say about elegy in my opinion everything comes back to two points one The fetches in Elegy represent the presence of death within life, specifically as reminders of one's own mortality, and within the episode, reminders of Scully's mortality and, quote, terminal illness. So really quickly, the season obviously does not have Scully die. She lives until the 11th season. Right. I I was preparing for this, and I was thinking about, is scully going to die like what is mortality what does it mean to be about to die in a television show no less especially a television show that we're watching where we know this is season four and there are six more seasons so i still have questions about that because i am not so sure because she has cancer and it could kill her does that mean that it's actually terminal but also we talked, we were again talking about this before the we started recording because I have very little memory of this whole cancer arc. <laughs> I, I guess the cancer in some ways is alien or paranormal. Is she dying now, but then suddenly she's not actually dying because it wasn't actual cancer in the sense that we typically think of cancer Yeah, I I have questions. Super nutshell. Scully was abducted by aliens way earlier in the series. She had a metal chip implanted in her neck. They got that removed. After it was removed, that somehow has caused cancer. And they find that other abductees, I believe, who did have theirs removed also got cancer. So it seems, if I recall correctly, that tampering with it is what triggers that. Mm -hmm. And by infiltrating government organizations, they are able to get Scully both life-saving treatment and some miraculous cancer cure. So it's like she's dying because she's quote-unquote dying perpetually since it's TV. Mm -hmm. She doesn't ultimately die which leads me to a sort of free will predetermination. Right, we have to we have to assume that that these fetches don't appear only to people who are fated to die. It seems like fate is not really at play here. Yeah, or that she is dying until Mulder and the Lone Gunman make the active decision that diverts her from death, and now she is no longer 
dying but like then right the unit we, we switch we switch universes yeah, yeah that that was what does dying mean what are frogs is my major question here when it comes to the function of these apparitions right and then my second takeaway is that ultimately the internal logic of the episode fails because it prioritizes having a spooky mystery that the audience won't solve too quickly and creating the right emotional circumstances for Scully over creating a mystery or monster with any discernible internal logic. It works when you're first watching it and it's washing over you and you don't know what's going to happen and you just get to experience the twists and turns. As we said, still the reveal that Innes was the killer doesn't really hit, but it's not until you start to actually think about the episode that it really falls apart. Yeah. Which I was just thinking, it it feels like such a 2020s media thing, Mm. where nowadays everything is so obsessed with like not being able to be spoiled, and so you have to write things to be completely unpredictable to the point that they are not satisfying to watch again, because you didn't see that that character was going to come back, you know? Mm. Um, And so then when you see it again, it's like, well, you already know that and it's completely unforeshadowed. So it's just like, oh, that just happens out of the blue, huh? Yeah. I guess my takeaway, which I've already sort of hinted at, is that the internal logic of the episode fails and it doesn't really matter. Something I kind of love about this era of television is that it can be ridiculous and wacky and illogical and still great. And I think television as a type of media can hold that in a way that we don't expect from movies. Maybe maybe now that we have prestige prestige, television. I've been oh my goodness. I have been trying that has been at the tip of my tongue for over a month and you just you just said it thank you well, so much you mentioned the sopranos earlier and all i think about with prestige television is the sopranos but you know what even in the sopranos you can have a balance because it's television between total goofiness and like ridiculous episodes where you have a couple of humorous characters stuck in the woods but they're also like having a serious emotional situation and there's something at stake and like people are dying and and i think that's what's so great about tv you are talking to somebody who is a riverdale stan so trust me i understand yeah like it it's it's just such true popular culture yeah and i think that is beautiful and i like held back on this for this long which i'm kind of impressed but like the funniest thing to me about Elegy is that I think it's a bad episode, and I also know that I like it. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I feel that way about a lot of X-Files episodes, to be honest. Yeah, I feel that, definitely. But it does very much add to the Scalder, Scully and Mulder tension story and it develops their relationship and uh what else could we want from it but a good ship (laughs) i'm on the boat unfortunately 
we must face the mortality, the impending end of this episode. I hope there's lunch in the afterlife. (laughs) If you want to get more Ghosts Were People 2, we implore you to follow us on Instagram and on Tumblr at Ghosts Were People 2. You can also email us and tell us how you feel about this X-Files episode at gwp2pod at gmail.com. Channel us there. Please leave us a rating and review if you can. I know that not all podcatchers do that, but some do, and it'd be awesome. Yes. And... If I get this out in time, happy Halloween. Please email us and tell us what you're going to be for Halloween. I want to know. Um, Or what you were for Halloween. Okay, wait, before we go, I just have to give a shout out to my mom who used to take me to the corn mazes during Halloween time and then yell in the corn maze, Scully! Scully, I'm in a cornfield! So I'll just say a Mulder, it's me once before uh, the Ouija board. Okay. Uh, Be safe out there. Don't eat any razor blades and apples that's not true that's not a real thing that ever happened no and if you see a ghost head to your local hospital immediately it might be terminal go bowling with your friends and as they say on the Ouija board Mulder it's me (laughs) no (laughs) goodbye goodbye